our passage this morning will be starting in John 6, verses, um, we'll start at verse 25, and we'll go through verse 35. I'm really excited about this passage. Uh, it's one of my favorite, but that can be very dangerous for a preacher, because like, I'll just get going, and right when you're ready for me to start closing, I'll just be hitting my stride. So who has lunch plans? What are, what's my time constraint? Um, Sorry, for those of you that are visiting, we'll keep it a normal time. Uh, we are following, so Jesus has fed 5,000. Uh, I want you to be reminded of the fact that there's a picture in the feeding of the 5,000 that sort of resembles the Exodus. It has a sense that Jesus and his disciples are on the mountain. It's the time of the Passover, and he sees the people coming, and he feeds them. Um, and so that's kind of a backdrop to what we're looking at this morning. And, and they, he leaves. He sends his disciples out ahead of him. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that this week. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then he kind of sneaks out. And this crowd's not happy about it. They're somewhat incredulous that he would leave them and run off. So uh, we're going to look at them coming to Jesus, finding him, and having this discourse, this interaction. And what we're, I'm going to hope you do is, I hope you realize the disciples are present, but they're sort of off to the side. We won't see them till part two uh, after Easter. We're going to come back and finish this passage. Um, but, but this morning, though, we're really dealing with this crowd that have hunted down Jesus, and they're trying to figure out, like, what's going on? And I want us to realize, rather than reading this crowd and going, they are way off, I would ask you to lean in and ask yourselves, how do I resemble this crowd in some, in some way. So let's look together, starting in verse 25. Again, the backdrop, they found, they remain on the other side where Jesus get, uh, get, crosses the sea on foot. And they get in these boats, they find him, and starting in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven or excuse me, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thirsty Teach us to not ignore that, but to run to you, to run to your son, Jesus. 
Holy Spirit, fill us with what that would look like in our lives. If there are those here this morning who are not yet Christians, I pray they would hear this message from Jesus and long for you and become Christians, even this morning. And Lord, for those of us that are Christians, that are disciples, uh, which all of us are that are Christians, teach us to walk with you and press into you and eat of you, whatever, however that would look for your glory. Amen. Um, I had a job a few years back before I went to seminary. I worked for a company called, maybe you've heard of it, it's called Xerox. Anyone? Uh, in fact, Xerox was so famous that like, they had to tell people, quit saying I'm going to make a Xerox, because like, then they would lose the right to their own name. So it's a copy, not a Xerox. And one of the things that I was doing was I was selling these machines, and they were digital machines. Like This was a new thing. So the xerographic process, I don't really understand it, but it's, it's analog. Okay? It's like mechanical. Like the, the original design, like the light had to shine up, and it did this, and it did that, and ink did this, and hey, you follow me? And it produced a copy. But every copy needed a swipe of the, of the, of the light thing. I'm using a third grade level. Okay, you're learning what I learned in training. The reason I didn't learn it is because I came along with digital. Like digital copiers, which is pretty much almost anyone uses anymore, like scan the image instantly and then it's in memory. And then it uses, you know, zeros and ones to encode what it saw. This is also not a well-developed well explanation. And it prints. It's like a printer, okay? Well, when we were coming out with digital at Xerox, which is better, you found these competitors who were trying to act like they were digital, but they were still not digital. They were zeographic. They were still doing the old method, but they would add maybe like a digital overlay, like a piece of it would be digital. And so our sales pitch was like, like you're going to get this machine and it's going to look the same, but it's going to break down faster because there's all these moving pieces. It works so much harder to try to do the same thing. But if you go all digital, it's like smooth, end to end. It'll last for a long time. It's you're going to love your life. And I sold a lot of copiers that way. The crowd is analog. The crowd is coming to Jesus trying to put a digital overlay. Okay, okay, Jesus. We hear you. We see your message. We see you feed us. We're wanting this new thing, but they're still analog. They're still working. And I think for many of us, as Christians, though we're Christians, though we believe in Jesus, a lot of our lives are living under the old analog way. And it's tiring us. And we're prone to failure. And we're going to break down. And so I hope you hear this morning that Jesus is saying to you, let's go digital. Let's go the new way. Eat of me and become a, a disciple of me by, by resting in me. So Jesus is offering us a complete new way to live. So we're going to look at that. And the way we're going to do it is kind of examining what this crowd's doing. And rather than saying, I'm glad I'm not one of them, as I've already told you, I want you to ask yourself, how? Where am I prone to act like them? So we're going to look at two, we're going to look at two points, the crowd's problem and then Jesus's answer. Okay. So what's going on with this crowd? What's the problem? It's really a fascinating passage because you have a dialogue, you have a discourse, and the crowd, they're asking questions that I think we ask. Like, first of all, remember, they find Jesus and they say, where were you? Like, where did you go? 
right? They're kind of irritated. And I want you to, I want to draw your attention to verse 25. Rabbi, Rabbi, when did you come here? That's a, that's a nice thing to call someone, Rabbi, except at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, what do they say in verse 14? This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So they're irritated and they're kind of reducing Jesus. You're just a rabbi. Where did you go? And, and the tendency there is to show that, that we oftentimes when things aren't working the way we want, the way our analog comes out is we become frustrated with God. We become frustrated with the way Jesus is working. And it's tempting to, to have that mindset. And I love his answer to their question. Uh, he doesn't answer them. He doesn't tell them a time. He doesn't tell them a place. He just simply says, look, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And I want to draw your attention to this, this next piece. Do not work for the food that perishes. And so the two things we're going to look at with the crowd's problem is, number one, the type of labor or work they were engaging in. And secondly, we're going to look at the food that they were after, what the produce was they were after. So starting with this idea of laboring. It's an interesting when I first really started meditating on this, it was astounding, to be honest, because they thought, I think, we're pursuing a person, Jesus, whoever he is, that can make food appear out of thin air. Like, right? That's what they had. They had the feeding of the 5,000. So in a way, they think, I'm going to find him and stay near him because he can give me a lot of stuff, like bread and fish and life. But Jesus sees a crowd of people who are irritated and grumpy and sweating, and they've just had to commandeer people's boats from Tiberias, and they're leaving from the east, the west side, coming across. I had that backwards. From the east side, coming to Capernaum, and they finally get off these boats, and they've looked for Jesus, and they finally find him possibly near a synagogue, and they're tired. And he's like, what are you working so hard for? Like, what are you laboring for? So the problem is that we don't realize what we're doing is like false labor. Um, when we, I was in seminary, I went in St. Louis, and the Mississippi thankfully didn't flood while we lived there, but some years prior it had flooded, and you could see the marking of this major flood. So you'd go down to the, the riverfront, and you'd see lines showing how high it rose. It was amazing like, how bad that, that, that river floods. And one of our professors said uh, he was describing kind of human nature. And he said, it's like sandbags. Like when you lay sandbags for a flood, there's something in us that's like, I've got to do something. And it's ironic because it's like, you're not going to probably stop the Mississippi. But something in us thinks, but if I get sandbags and I fill them, and of course, I'm not, obviously, if there's some flooding and you need to do sandbags, I highly encourage you to do it. But when the Mississippi is flooding, it just seems futile. And he said it was futile, and there'd always be that like last sandbag. And then what happens is you have to trust God. Or if some people would say, oh, well, we trust Mother Nature, however you want to say it. We trust God. God's the one who brings this. And the point for us is we are often busy laying sandbags thinking we're getting somewhere. We're laboring. Right? Do you see your work as labor? Secondly, the, the concept I just want to bring up is perishing. So we're laboring 
thinking we're getting somewhere when we're not, but we're also laboring for something that perishes. Going back to verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. Um, I just, this is what we do, like this crowd. We like labor for things that perish. Um, What model of iPhone do you have? Everyone think about it for a minute. I was reading somewhere about how car marketing eventually realized every year we need a new model. I don't remember what book this was in. I'll think of it if you want to know later. But it became a marketing ploy. It wasn't an engineering idea. Hey, we just figured out fenders, you know. Or maybe we should add another something to the engine. It was like the marketer saying, we need a 1997 model. And so then the engineers have to go figure out what to change. And then what they found out was the companies who just said, forget it, were waiting till there's a legitimate change, would get like loose sales. So everybody jumped on board. And I was talking to Chris about this, um, and he says it's in the golf club world. When I grew up golfing, I had ping eyes. And then, but the ones that everyone else had, the ones I kind of really wanted were ping eye twos. Like those were, it seemed like for like a long time, those were the best pings you could have. Like what number are we at now? Like 80? He doesn't know. He knows. Trust me, he knows. (laughs) Different numbers, different letters were way, what what happened? And so as we were having this conversation, he said, can I bring this up? Can I say this? That the rep said the best club we ever made was the Ping Zing. And I remember that. That's an ugly club. It is ugly. But he said for years they had had to move beyond it because marketing, even though the players that played it, the engineers that knew it would say, this is still the best club. Okay, what's the point? We are so committed to new things because we're so committed to the things perishing. We just assume that they perish. It's more than just, oh darn, my phone got old. It's almost like we buy the thing going, I can't wait to get the next model. Like I'm committed to a cycle of perishing. Is that in the passage? He says, you ate your filth. You're pursuing me because you ate your fill. You ate so much food, you were full, and you no longer wanted to make me king. I got to slip away. You didn't even know I left. Then what happened the next morning? A little growl in the tummy. I'm hungry, and you went looking for me. And that's the cycle we're in, and our hearts are in that cycle as well. And it's in our passage later when after Jesus starts to explain some things to them, Uh, they say this, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Well, I I fed 5,000 of you. Actually, I fed 20,000 of you or whatever the total number was with bread and fish. And there were 12 basketfuls afterward. But they're going to go ahead and continue their debate with him because our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Now, you remember the story of the manna? The man is like, okay, you're starving, you're in the wilderness, it's the exodus. God provided like a miracle food, but the, the key was you only gather what you need, you eat it, and then whatever you don't eat, you got to get rid of because it perishes. And then the next day you need to do that again and again. And what Jesus reminds them, it was my father that provided it. And what he was wanting to show you is I'm the one that provides life for you. But there was something even in them the original group that was gathering the manna that, that got interested in the perishing and the daily use of it. 
And these people are following right in suit. What we want is we want to labor and we want to work. We want food. In fact, um, I'm, I just am stunned by the verse 34, how it says this. After Jesus explains, the Father will give you the bread, right? He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Give us this bread always. Now, I couldn't find a commentator who fully agreed with me, which is dangerous. So I'm going to just tell you a thought I'm having. Some would say, aha, they were close to being repentant. They wanted the bread of life. Calvin and others would say, not even close. I'm saying I think they're getting close, but they still have this perception that Jesus is simply going to hand them something like manna. They're not sure what it's going to look like, similar to the woman at the well with water. Not really sure how it's going to work, but it's going to meet physical needs. I'll get hungry again. I'll eat more. I'll get hungry. Totally bypassing that spiritual longing in their soul. That's what I want you to do right now. I want you to agree with me that you have this itch deep inside of you that only Jesus can meet. Um, I've tried this, I've, I've talked, I've used this illustration with people talking, I've never used it in a sermon, and it's really good. So I'm really excited about this illustration. Okay, it's from the movie. <laughs> but it may not work, because I'm too excited about it. Who has seen Two for the Money? Okay, Al Pacino, Matthew McConaughey, probably forgot the name of the movie. It's that movie where uh, Al Pacino has a gambling Sports gambling business in Vegas. Matthew McConaughey joins him. He's the teacher, Pacino, and McConaughey's the learner. And one of the unique things about their relationship is Matthew McConaughey is also a gambler, which gets him in some trouble, but Pacino is disciplined. He doesn't gamble. And you don't know why. And then there's this scene in the movie where unannounced to Matthew McConaughey's character, Pacino says, let's go in here to this meeting. And it's a gambler's anonymous meeting. And so you're like, as the viewer, you're like, aha. Like, that's why he doesn't gamble, because he had an addiction. Uh, it's not true. Uh, he actually goes in there to get new clients. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> but before he does that part and hands out his card to everybody, uh, he makes this speech. He stands up. So a guy named Leon has just shared his sad story of gambling and addiction and loss. And Pacino, and I'm going to use my accent, and I'm going to also cut out the words that Pacino uses that aren't fitting for church. So this is the PG slash G version, except for the, con the concept's really awesome and adult-like. Okay. He says, gambling is not your problem. And he's looking right at this guy, Leon. You're a lemon, like a bad car. There is something, there is something inherently defective in you. And you, I'm not going to look at anybody as I do this part. And you, and you, and me, and then all of us, as he points to the group. We look like everyone else out there, but what makes us different is our defect. See, most gamblers, when they go to gamble, they go to win. When we go to gamble, we go to lose. Subconsciously, me, I never feel better than when they're raking the chips away. Not bringing them in. And everyone here knows exactly what I'm talking about. Heck, that's a change. Even when we win, it's just a matter of time before we give it all back. 
But when we lose, that's another story. When we lose, and I'm talking about that kind of loss that makes you sick at your stomach. I changed some of that. You know what I mean. You've just recreated the worst possible nightmare this side of a malignant cancer for the 20th time. And you're standing there and you suddenly realize, hey, I'm still here. I'm still breathing. I'm still alive. Us lemons, we mess up all the time on purpose because we constantly need to remind ourselves we are alive. Gambling's not your problem. It's this need to feel something, to convince yourself you exist. That's the problem. Wow, that's a big sell. Most of you are going to go, huh? Oh, like, I don't think that's my problem. But let's back up for a moment. Humankind, apart from the regenerative work, regenerative work of Jesus, saving of Jesus, is a lemon running on the flesh, right? And, and everybody is running after something, and we knowingly say this, I know it won't make me happy, but I'm still going to go for it, right? There's an entire city in Nevada built on this. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. There's an entire casino called the Mirage. It's like, it's not even real. Poof, you're going to show up, and it's like it never happened. And yet we run headlong down these paths, right? And it can happen religiously, and this crowd is part of it. And what I'm saying is that Jesus is saying to us, there's another way. There's another alternative, right? You don't have to run and run and run after things that are perishing because it's a labor. That's like a beating after the wind, and it's exhausting. So the solution that Jesus offers us, right? You know the answer, right? He tells them the answer. And I want to break it up into two things. He's going to argue that instead of laboring, in verse 27, he says, believe, right? So he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but, and he doesn't use the word work again, but for the food that endures. So he's implying that there's work involved, right? And then when they ask the question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In verse 29, he says, this is the work of God that you believe, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's very tempting for us to go, that's easy. That is the hardest thing you will ever do. The hardest thing to do is to place that last sandbag down and trust. The hardest thing to do is to believe that God is good when all the evidence you see is pointing the other way. Right? We think to ourselves, I'd rather do futile effort work and stay busy and wear myself down than to trust the goodness of Jesus. And so we have Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And in this passage, you have a clear presentation of justification by faith that you are saved by your faith in Christ, but that also we grow in Christ as we come back to him, eating of his bread, right, by faith, by belief. And I think it's very challenging to understand that because we're scared of letting go of what we do and trusting Jesus. And the most beautiful parable picture of that we had just a few verses before. So before, between the feeding of the 5,000 
and the crowd finding Jesus, we have this amazing miracle we discussed a few weeks ago where the disciples are laboring in a boat to get to the shore and the windstorm is keeping them from any forward motion. To let go would simply drive them right back where they came from or somewhere down the coast and they're in a pickle. I've never used that word in a sermon. That's why you write a manuscript and memorize it. Just kidding. Isn't that funny? That's the word I'm embarrassed by. Pickle. They're in a pickle. They are striving. And Jesus shows up, and that's where their terror ensues. They're afraid. Why? Because he's walking on water. Because they had no idea that he would show up. Because Mark tells us their hearts were hardened. They weren't like the crowd. They were disciples. But their hearts were hardened. And in our passage in John, they invite him or welcome him in the boat. In either Matthew or Mark's account, I can't which, remember which, they worship him. Okay? They're no longer rowing or whatever they were doing, messing with sails. They simply worship. They're in awe. And, they, and John tells us immediately they're at the shore where they were going. There is something beautiful about Jesus. When you worship him, you come to him, and you lay your heart to him, he gives you rest, that he takes you where you're going. There's a favorite quote Emily and I have of Paul Miller's about praying, saying that a praying life doesn't lead to a less busy life, but to a less busy heart. And so much of the labor I'm talking about are the things inside the copy machine that are churning and killing you? Are you willing to take Jesus and rest in him and believe in him? What would that look like? Secondly, he's the bread of life. He's not just the, only, the source of the normal bread, but what he gives you is beyond bread, beyond the norm, beyond perishing. So we've been studying in this passage how... Uh, they were laboring for food that perishes, and you see that all the way through this, this exchange, that what they really want is for him to basically recreate the manna miracle in their midst over and over. And he's saying, not only do you access what I'm offering you by faith, which we just talked about, but what I'm offering you gives you true life. Verse 30, 35, right? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How does that work? I, I think you have to begin with the end in mind. Um, I, I love books on, I love, for some reason I love reading how people do their art. It's just really, it's neat to see. How do writers write? How do they do that? And one writer I really like, John Irving, uh, has a lot of great information on how he writes his novels. But one of the things that he does, he says he starts with the ending. So he has an idea, he processes it, however he gets there, but he figures out the ending. And once he has that ending, then he can go back and start writing, and wherever it goes, he knows where he's going to end up. Does that make sense? Another example would be Lonesome Dove, my, probably my favorite like, novel. And I always wondered, how did Larry McMurtry write this? And I found out he took a true story. If you know the ending of Lonesome Dove about the two... Texas Rangers, the, am I ruining it? It's been 35 years. We're past the... But he takes that ending from actual history. He figures it out, and then he starts over here, 
And he, just, and he knows where he's going, and he meanders, and he goes in seemingly lots of directions, but the end where he's ending up is with this ending that's powerful. What's your ending? What are you after? If you think about the things you think about and write them down, what do they show? We've heard things like, look at where your money goes. Look at, maybe look at your calendar. Where does your time go? Um... Look at your Netflix history. I don't know. Look at stuff that show you kind of what you're passionate about. But what does this passage teach? Where are you going? See, the point of Jesus is to say, the shore, I've got you. I'm the ending. Jesus is the ending. Right? He's not the vehicle. He gets on the boat, let go of the, let go. Like he's there. You can worship him. When you have Jesus, you have new life now. Truly, truly, I'm at verse 32. I say to you, it was not Moses who past tense gave you the bread from heaven, but my father present tense gives you the true bread from heaven. And so when you start to process that reality of what that would look like in your life, what you will find is you can begin to see what's the ending you're after. Um, I was processing this, and it, I'll be honest, I didn't know how to tell you about it. Um, it's hard to grasp, and I thought of a Bible verse. So I'm going to read you the Bible verse that should have come to me long before it did. And I just want to walk you through some of these verses from the, the um, Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy. A few verses later, no one can serve two masters. You can't be digital and analog. It doesn't work. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And he goes through all the ways you're anxious and how God clothes the lilies of the field. And then he says this at the end, and you know it. He says, he says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he doesn't say, and then after you've done that, start seeking some of the other stuff you're worried about. What does he say? And they will be added to you. That is the profound difference. Who would have ever thought a zero and a one could be a copy machine? Like, no one would have ever thought that. It's crazy. Who would have ever thought Jesus on the boat, Jesus in my soul, me worshiping Jesus would lead to peace and lead to growth and lead to security. It'll be added to you. But when you just treat him like an overlay and you go after those things, it will fall and you will struggle and life will get bogged down. And eventually our crowd, when they hear Jesus' full message, will leave him. And it's the disciples who will say to him, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, we run after so many things. If we're honest, we buy new products looking for them to get old. We start our year thinking about the next one. We're constantly dissatisfied and we love it. We say we hate it, but we have a secret love. Because, Father, to finally rest in you is costly. It costs us everything because we have to die to self. 
But Lord, it cost you everything because you died on a cross and you covered us with your blood. And I pray for forgiveness for myself and my brothers and sisters who believe that, we know that, we relish in that truth, and yet we still struggle with coveting and envy in so many ways. Our, our hearts try to grasp onto this fallen world. Forgive us. Thank you, Jesus, for this story. Thank you that you welcome us with open arms. Even the disciples had hard hearts, and you got on that boat, and you showed them what it means to follow you. I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you. Let them lay their weapons down. Let let them lay down their striving. Let them admit it's not working, that you might work. I pray, Lord, all of us would trust in you and spend eternity with you for your glory. Amen.